From KIOS in Omaha and Exarban Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, we continue our look into the congressional candidates who want to represent you in the federal government leading up to Nebraska's primary on May 12th. This week, I have a conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Chris Janicek, who is running against Nebraska's sitting senator, Ben Sass. If there's money for war, I believe there's money for health care. If there's money for war, I believe there's money for education. And we really have to stop treating education and health care as expenses, and we have to start treating them as investments. Janicek speaks about his disillusionment with the political system and how his personal struggle with health care inspired him to take the leap to run for office and influence the country with his ideas for improvement. After a break, stick around for my conversation with Chris Janicek right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast, you should check out Stitcher. Those of you listening already get why, and for those of you who don't, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Probably another 100,000 every day we are in quarantine. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription service called Stitcher Premium. That has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening, all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from the Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness podcast or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. So go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Chris Janicek, who is currently a Democratic challenger to Nebraska's sitting senator, Ben Sass. Later in the show, Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt will read an article she wrote for the Omaha World Herald, answering frequently asked questions about mail-in voting. My conversation with Chris Janicek was recorded in March 2020, early in the COVID-19 outbreak and government responses to it. Please enjoy. Have you ever done any radio? I have. What, what, was, your, what was your experience in radio? Uh, <laughs> I've not done it professionally, just lots of interviews and stuff. Okay, um, yeah. There's that radio station down at the Malcolm X Center that I did for a while, um, some stuff in Chicago. Um, I was a spokesperson for Martha Stewart's company in oh, really? New York. Yeah, so you've got a lot of different yeah. various. My dad used to work for K. Do you remember K O I L? By any chance, you're too no, young. No, no. The good guys with the smiley face. Yeah, no. Look no now we're gonna bell. <laughs> Look it up sometime. It was the station in Omaha. Was it okay? Yeah, in the '70s. Yeah, so I mean, you've had I mean, a lot of experience. Now you're running for Senate. Uh, let's go to the very beginning, though. I mean, are you from Omaha originally? I am from David City, Nebraska, originally, City, which okay. is out in Butler County, about an hour and 15 minutes straight west of here. Okay, and what was that like? That was great. We grew up on a farm, uh, moved to David City, but then our parents would take us to the farm when they worked their jobs. And uh, we helped Grandpa and Grandma do the farming every day. I remember Grandma and I would make lunch, and Grandpa was too stubborn to come in because he wanted to be in the field while the sun was up. So we'd run it out to the field with him. He'd pick me up, put me on the tractor tire, we'd sit and have lunch, and then Grandma and I would head back to the farmhouse and we'd start supper for him and the farmhands, yeah. So, I mean, totally the farming experience then. Yes, yes, yes. And so when you were in school then, I mean, did you know at some point you wanted to get out of that sort of lifestyle? I or? had no idea. I mean, I was like a sponge in school. And and uh, you hear all the time, live your life with the innocence of a child. And everything is new and everything is creative. And I think people today really need to embrace that life form anymore rather than taking everything so serious and just being so judgmental on others. So you learned that from your grandparents? From my grandparents, and- definitely, yes. And then, you know, right now I'm a small business owner, and my business is the baking business, cakes and cupcakes and, and what have you in the event planning business. And I learned that from my grandmothers because my favorite thing to do when we would make supper for my grandpa and the others would be to go through the church cookbooks and that, you know, everyone had those and uh, pick a recipe for a dessert. And then it was whether it was a pie or a cake or a jello or a cobbler, we would make that, and I would just be so fascinated with that. So who knew seven years of college, and now I'm baking again. So, 
Well, so did you did you go to high school in David City then? I went to high school here in Omaha, okay. Archbishop Ryan High School of 60th and L, uh, which is now the site of one of the new Omaha public schools being built. Uh, Ryan closed in 1985, and it was used as the Liberty um, Religious Center for a while, and the property's been sold. And so it's going to be a beautiful new school on the hill. So, What kind of student were you? I was a good student. Um, I finished top 20 in my class, although our class had 20 kids. No, um, we had about 450 in the class. Uh, Ryan High School was a little different. It was more college prep, and they allowed you to take the classes that fit uh, your personality and your um, education level. And we had these things called learning activity packages, and everyone was on a different one. And once you progressed out of that class or that package, you went on to the next class. So it was like learning at your own speed, but the teachers and the nuns were there to help you. Um, and then they engaged student uh, counseling a lot, too. So the, the students helped the other students. It was a great school. That sounds like it might be a lot of pressure to actually know what you want to do, though. It, right. Uh, I did not know what I wanted to do <laughs> at that point. But I went on to college and uh, studied English and journalism and dentistry and biology and still turning my wheels and you know we're just not programmed to figure out what we want to do at such a young age and that's why I think uh, politically we need to start treating uh, higher learning and college as an investment versus an expense because a a smart populace of a country just leads to the creativity and and, uh, the well-being of the country and we've kind of lost track of that with the student debt and everything going on now. So you mean, I mean, even from like a high school perspective and then college as well? Or? Yeah. If I had to do it all over again, I would have never went into college right after high school. I would have taken some years, two years, three years, uh, traveled, definitely learned the um, priority of work and making your own money and paying your own bills uh, and just take it a much needed break and kind of explore society and the community around you to see, you know, what you were interested in, what you might want to pursue. Yeah, so it sounds like you were interested in everything. I was. I was. And I still am. <laughs> so, But right now it's politics because I just do not like the way this government is running the country. Um, I think they've forgotten who they work for, the politicians. Uh, it would be the people, just like the Constitution says, we the people. And in the Constitution, government is supposed to operate for the people, by the people, and of the people. But uh, it seems to be working directly against us at this point. So some of those roots of political interest, political ideology, did that start when you were young? It did. It did. What's the story of that? You know, my dad was um, a very conservative Democrat. Uh, My mom was more of a moderate Democrat. Um, I was a Republican for a while until, um, who's the movie star president in the 80s? I can't think of his name. Reagan took over and uh, some of the ways he addressed the population made me uh, turn like a dime into a Democrat. but And since then, I've always been interested in politics. I didn't think I would ever run for an office. But in 2014, uh, when they went and tried to take health care away, um, I had some pre-existing conditions through my family uh, lineage and was very hard to get health insurance if I didn't pay an outrageous price for it. It was to the point where I was on a catastrophic plan where my premiums were $600 a month and I was responsible for the first $10,000. So when the Affordable Health Care Act came out, I was immediately on that. And uh, the the guy I'm running against, Ben Sass, our current senator, who has done nothing to help with health care. In fact, he's voted over and over and over to take it away with no replacement. Uh, When he voted probably the fourth or fifth time to overturn that, I said, something's got to be done. And then with a little research, I realized over 165,000 people in Nebraska did not have adequate health care or no health care at all. And that's when I became very serious about running for office, and that became my new purpose in life. What year was that? That would have been 2015. Okay, so fairly recently that you just decided, okay, I have to do something. Something has to be done, right. Okay, so I'm I'm trying to build the narrative here, so let's take a step back. We'll we'll get back to this, I promise, though. Okay, I'll give you plenty of time to talk about the current situation. But uh, so, okay, so when you're younger, you said your parents were Democrats, you were Republican. When did that shift, or when did you decide you were not like them initially? I never... I think it was more of a rebellion thing. Yeah. They're Democrats. I'm going to be Republican. I'm going right. to be the opposite. Not even understanding it. Yeah. And <laughs> when I did come of age in 18, 19 years old, and I saw what the party of, what's his name again? Reagan. Reagan. <laughs> I don't know why I keep forgetting that. Blocked him out. Blocked him out. Uh, 
what was doing with the country and how he failed to address things, especially the HIV crisis at the time, which kind of is like the coronavirus right now. We have an administration that is not giving its full attention and making excuses for it. And that really, really turned me the other way. And uh, then studying how the parties operated, it, it cemented my my ideology into the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, I always find that people, it's hard when your parents are one thing. I mean, some people have that instinct where it's like, whatever my parents are is what I want to be right. forever. Other people, it's like, well, I must not be that because I don't want to be exactly like them. Uh, but I mean, there's always that discovery. And I always respect when people actually just explore, challenge their ideas, and then come up with something that they actually believe. But it, sometimes it's kind of like even what we're saying with what do you want to do with life, what you believe politically, sometimes just takes a long time to set in. Correct. And then also it doesn't necessarily align directly with one party or the other. So, I mean, for you, were you studying politics, political theory, political history, philosophy, any of that? Once I got to UNO, I did start studying it. I had friends down in Lincoln that were studying um, political science, which I had no idea it was a science to study the political ongoings and how candidates and elected officials actually operated. And it is a science. And you have a lot of people that are in politics that actually care about people and know that they work for the people and know that they represent the people because the people elected them. And then you have a lot of candidates and politicians that basically work for their own special interest and also for corporate America. And they have no concern with the people that elected them. They only find them important when they need their vote. And then it's a lot of slick advertising and a lot of money, and they secure that position again, and then they self-represent themselves again for six years. So, so you were you were figuring that out when you were in Correct. college, Correct. and so that's I mean that's a big moment of disillusionment, right? It was, and the humanities courses and the social uh, courses that I took and really opened my eyes to it's just not right or left or right or wrong that there is a gray area there there is an area to move the country and our state forward. And it's not always about left-thinking ideas and right-thinking ideas, but about the right ideals to move everything forward and to you know, recognize people is the, the reason we have a country in the first place and that they have needs and, and wants and, and what have you. So, yeah, that, that was, it was an eye-opener. It was, it was what do they call the light bulb moment. Right. <laughs> yes, but the light bulb took a while to turn on. Well, I mean, that's, that specific revelation is almost one of those ones where it either turns you away from politics forever or you're hooked forever because you want to move things in the right direction. Right. So, I mean, at that point, when you're in college, did you have any idea you'd want to run for office at some point? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and that was during the Clinton years, mm -hmm. and things were going really well with the Clintons. And I had worked in Washington, D.C. at that time, and I had seen... I thought D.C. was operating for the benefit of people and was very disillusioned when I was out there. And I saw, again, how a lot of people were in it for themselves and corporate America uh, influenced how people in power voted based on how much money they gave, based on whether they, they wanted the vote to be yes or no. Uh, got out of there, got back to Nebraska, started my businesses. Uh, then under the Bush administration, he wasn't a bad president. He wasn't a great president, you know. But then Obama came in, and we really started seeing the changes and how it benefited people and how it benefited our economy and how it benefited almost everybody. Um, and then I think because of the color of his skin, you had a lot of haters with him and, and people that vowed not to help him do anything, no matter what their, their status was in, in government. And uh, he still got a lot done. And so that was something where you had your businesses and then you just felt that pull more so? I mean, because you're seeing some progress or you're seeing things move the way you wanted. Correct. And you almost feel like, I want to protect that progress. Right. Well, health insurance was the, the backbreaker. Right. Um, because we finally took something out of the for-profit health insurance companies in the United States. And when I say for-profit, I, I think I'm a capitalist first. I'm not a socialist, but I do think socialism is somewhat good for the country because capitalism is where we can make the money on our own as much as we want. Socialism is what we have to pay back a little bit in order to build an infrastructure and a society that supports the company that we're making money as a capitalist off of. Um, that word is so poorly defined anymore. It's, it's equated with communism and equated with government owns all the businesses, and none of that's true that's happening here. You know, if you carry a social security card you're part of the socialism aspect of the United States. I drove on the roads to get here to the radio station. I didn't pay for those. 
the people of the country collectively paid for that. There's a public school that just got built across the street from your studio. We all paid for that. There's a thing called the fire department, the police department, 911. We all pay for that. Those are all forms of socialism. So, which I'm sure we'll get to this, but going down that road, the health care issue, I think, is a social aspect that has to be addressed. Um, if there's money for war, I believe there's money for health care. If there's money for war, I believe there's money for education. And we really have to stop treating education and health care as expenses, and we have to start treating them as investments into our country, into the people that make this country what it is. Well, I, I'm glad you brought up, actually, this element of socialism and the definitions of it, because I feel like uh, I've got a lot of political guests lined up as we launch this show here, and it seems like that is going to be a sticking issue where people just don't agree on what they're even right. talking about with it. And so, I mean, if you can't agree on your definition, I was just talking with Don Bacon about this, I, you know, I have issue when it's just we're talking past each other without even agreeing on what we're arguing about. Right. So, I mean, I was talking with him about it, and he says basically he rejects the idea that socialism can be social programs. And he even went so far as to say that Norway is like a completely capitalist country, despite the fact that they have a lot of government-owned industry, a lot, you know, a lot of social programs, social welfare uh uh, social wealth funds, et cetera. And so, I mean, it's it's kind of this weird impasse where why is it that we can't even agree on what we're arguing, what we're for, what we're against? Because, like, if Don Bacon can say Norway's a good system and it's not socialist and someone else would say, well, it is socialist and also maybe we should do some of that, how do we even have that discussion? Right. Well, we've got to take the blinders off, number one. We've got to stop looking at socialism and democracy and a republic and capitalism as bad things and find the good in them, we can learn a lot of uh, things from different countries. Like I think you mentioned Norway earlier. Mm -hmm. I mean, the system works for them. Why does it work for them? Why don't we have some people over here at, sitting at a table discussing why this economy works in Norway and it doesn't work here? Uh, go back to health care. We need a government oversight on health care. Uh, look at our travel industry. All the airlines are owned by private for-profit companies. Yet we have oversight uh, through the FAA, the Federal Aviation Commissioner at FAH, that oversees where planes are flown, how much they are flown, where they land, how the airports are maintained. And, you know, the airports are all socialistic endeavors because our tax dollars build the airports for the private airline companies to exist. So there's all kinds of ways you can break down capitalism and socialism. But like you said earlier, socialism is going to be a huge buzzword in the 2020 election cycle. And people have got to remove the ignorance and study up on it and understand exactly what it means. We live in a socialistic society right now with socialism every time we turn around. That was created, I believe, under FDR in the 50s with the Social Security program to enable people that once they, they got out of the workforce at age 65 to have some sort of income that they paid for through working all their years provided by the federal government. And, you know, my mom is 83 years old and she gets a Social Security check and she is taxed on that check. Now, I understand that's money that was put away from her paychecks over the 40-some years that she worked, uh, I don't think that money should be taxed and go back. That's money she's earned. She probably could have made a lot more money with that if she had invested that, that withdrawal or that deduction over the 40 years she was in the workforce than the government's paying her back. But that's the program that sets, is set up, and it actually works right now. So there's no reason we shouldn't expand on it. Right. So, I mean, you're interested in actually – having those discussions about what's working about the social programs, what's not. It seems like a lot of the time, though, it's just like, should we get rid of all social programs? You know, I mean, I feel like we're not even engaging in the nuance that right. often in our current political discourse. There's no way we could ever, ever get rid of all the social programs. Uh, right now, on the radio today, on the way down here, actually, to speak with you, um, this administration is now talking about making billions and billions of dollars available for the travel industry and for the cruise ship industry, uh, for the oil industry, because there's a war going on right now with Russia and the Middle East over the price. And uh, we should be self-sustainable here in the United States market. But if they can buy oil cheaper elsewhere, we're not going to sell ours and our prices. That's all socialism. And this has to be addressed. In my business, if my cupcake sales were to go down because everyone went on no cupcake diets, I can't look to the government to give me money to bail me out. Now, I know this is more of a natural occurrence with a, a health care issue and what have you, but 
again, when we take our tax dollars and bail out privately held companies, that is another form of socialism. We did it in 2008 and 2009 when we bailed out the automotive uh, industry, when we bailed out the big banks, when we bailed out the insurance companies. A lot of those uh, credit card companies that we bailed out, the Citibanks and the Bank of Americas and the Chase uh, companies, you know, Bank of America went over to China and acquired a $6 billion banking infrastructure on the money they borrowed from the federal government. Citibank went out and bought a fleet of $40 million jets for their CEOs to fly out, out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota and Las Vegas, Nevada on the money they borrowed to bail them out of the banking industry. When those loans, if you want to call them that in quotes, were issued, there was no repayment timeline. There was no interest charge. It was just to keep our economy afloat. You had the automotive industry CEO showing up in Washington, D.C. in their private jets and their private cars. And what should have been said at that point um, under Bush or under Obama, who was ever meeting with the people at the time, why don't you go home and take the bus here or take the train or fly commercial and then tell me how much you need the money? Because I know if I had showed up in my mother's driveway in a brand new Mercedes asking her to borrow money, she would have said to me, why don't you sell the car first and then come talk to me about what you need uh, for a loan. I know Martin Luther King had said that this country is one where we have socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Do you agree with that? I agree with that 100%. What, what's your re- I feel like well, after the Don Bacon thing, you have, we have to define some of these right. things now. So. Well, the last conversation you and I just had was about the government is now contemplating bailing out the travel industry, the airline companies, uh, the cruise ship companies, the oil companies. Not one mention has been made about all the people that have to take off work for 14 days and quarantine at home, that have no sick pay, that have no vacation pay, that are working a minimum. How are these people supposed to survive? Again, we're showing capitalistic socialism and we're not showing people socialism. With the the foreclosures that went on in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, you had the big banks uh, not negotiating with the people that own the homes that couldn't make the payments because they lost their jobs because the economy had collapsed. But you had the big banks borrowing money from the federal government to bail them out and keep them going. So again, it just socialism for rich corporations versus socialism for the people who actually make the country operate. There's a huge divide that's not being addressed. What do you make of this idea that if the current Republican line is that Nordic countries aren't socialist despite doing a lot of social programs. I mean, does that almost open a door where you can say, okay, well, I guess it is capitalist then for nationalizing a lot of industry to do a social wealth fund. You nailed it. Let's call it capitalism then, and let's have a universal health care system here in the United States of America. Let's have a universal education system here in the United States of America. Now, I'm not saying that health care should be free. I'm not saying that education should be free. But we have to make an investment in health care, and we have to make an investment in education. We cannot have a country that produces anything with an ignorant, unhealthy, sick workforce. This benefits all of us. Uh, business owners and business leaders want to hire the smartest and the best people. We can't do that if we don't invest in education. One of the things you brought up with like the Nordic countries, all of their programs are socialistic. But you are still allowed to run the country as a capitalistic society and make the money. Now, what we don't have that the Nordic countries have is a proper tax base. So people over there usually pay 40 to 50 percent of their income in the form of taxes, which offsets the cost of health care and education. Right now in this country, I believe the highest tax rate is 37 percent. But by the time you add up what you would spend on education, by the time you would add up what you spend on health care premiums, deductions, co-pays, what you're not covered for, that probably offsets a 40% tax bracket that you're in. You know, when I travel the state and I talk to the residents of Nebraska about how we need a universal health care plan, they always say, but our taxes are going to go up. I said, they, they probably will go up 4 to 5%, but all your other expenses associated with health care are going to go away. So you're going to come out ahead of the game. Um, we're proposing a 4 or 5% single-payer type system with universal health care, where it's based on your income. If you made $40,000 a year and you're taxed at 5% on your gross income, that's $2,000 that is paid into a universal health care fund. You're done. You're covered for the rest of the year. You can go to any hospital, any doctor. You can choose health care in any state 
in the in the United States. You don't get a bill in the mail. You don't have a copay. Your prescription drugs have been negotiated through the Medicare for all plan or Medicare for seniors plan to a Medicare for all plan where we all pay the same prices. There's no reason in the North American continent that we should be faced with three different price structures for prescription drugs, being Canada, the United States, and of course the most reasonable prescription drugs are Mexico. The drug companies have a license to steal from people that are on life-saving medications and everyday medications uh, such as insulin to all of us, and that's what drives the healthcare cost up. Most CEOs of the 10 or 11 largest healthcare companies in the United States right now make in excess of $30 million a year in salary alone, not to include their stock uh, buybacks and their stock uh, incentives that they get for, for, for performing. And that is where we have to address this for-profit system. Stay tuned for more of my conversation with Senate candidate Chris Janicek after this quick break. From Omaha Public Radio, I'm Emily Chen Newton, and you're listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made Over America, the podcast that's part history and culture and part science, and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But here's the thing. I am not from the Midwest, so in every episode, I do the research and then I sit down with someone who is from here, and together we explore the stories of famous persons, products, inventions, social movements, and cultural beliefs that got their start right here in the middle of America. Hi, I'm Joe Firestone, and I have a new podcast out now called Everyday Decisions. It's a show where I talk to guests about the last 24 hours of their life. They're still alive. They continue to live, but the last 24 hours before they record it, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about little decisions that they make throughout their day. Uh, and I, I really think that these little decisions, like you know, whether you choose Q-tips or cotton balls, I think these are the kinds of things that really um, make make the great people great so that's why i'm talking to them we're going to have all kinds of guests like dentists and comedians and musicians and um you know children under five it's going to be very good so subscribe now wherever you listen to your podcasts And welcome back to Riverside Chats. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Chris Janicek, who is running to represent Nebraska in the United States Senate. Later in the program, we'll hear from Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt about how mail-in voting works. This conversation with Chris Janicek was recorded in March, before the government had established many of the COVID-19 restrictions currently in place. There's a stereotype that Nebraska is automatically against, like a Medicare for all or any sort of anything Correct. moving that direction. You obviously have been talking to a lot of potential voters, a lot of actual voters. What have you heard? The, the stereotype is based on fear and based on ignorance. Now, when I say ignorance, that's, I'm not referring to that as in a negative sense. Ignorance is the inability to understand what is actually going on because you have not researched the facts and you don't know all the evidence to back a claim. Once we educate people how this would work, everyone's on board. You know, they think that the taxes are going to go up, but they still have to pay premiums. They still have to pay a $10,000 deductible, and they still have to pay a copay. That all goes away. You actually benefit from a universal health care plan. It's going to create hundreds of thousands of new jobs when we, we go to this system. It's going to create better health care because there's going to be a competition. It's going to create a higher wage for every nurse, doctor, anyone in the field because you're going to bring in so many people that never had health care before that you can treat that will be covered under the new plan. So it is a win-win situation. It, it's something that it's kind of a no-brainer. And I mean, this was definitely something that Ben Sass has talked a lot. I mean, he running on anti-Obamacare sort of messaging. Right. He got elected. What do you make of his current either position or just the fact that he was able to sort of make that one of the core tenets of his uh, of his campaign and then actually get in office. Let's talk about Ben Sass. That All is right. who I'm running against in this 2020 Senate election that's coming up in November. This is why I need your vote. Ben Sass in 2014 ran on providing health care for everyone. Ben Sass got into office and voted over and over and over, I'm going to say it one more time, over 
to take health care away from the American people. The first plan was to repeal and to replace. Repeal and replace. Then they dropped the replace and said, let's just repeal it, and we'll worry about replacing it with something better later on. Ben Sass voted to defund anything that was going on with the Affordable Health Care Act, to bankrupt it. Ben Sass voted to take away the, the mandate that everyone have insurance to make the system work. Ben Sass voted for a huge tax cut for the super wealthy that was supposed to trickle down and provide jobs and raises. It hasn't happened, nor it has, is it going to happen. It created a $24 trillion deficit for this, this country. Ben Sass voted to fund a border wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for. Ben Sass has voted to defund Planned Parenthood, one of the only health care options that women have to go to if they don't have health care or don't have the money to pay. I'm curious about how you feel, what, what you feel his motivations are, because he ran on this very, you know, like federalist, you know, originalist sort of ma- mindset. He doesn't really present himself the same way as a lot of Nebraskan politicians do, at least coming from the right. I mean, what, what do you think his motivations are for the way that he's been voting over the course of his, uh, his tenure? Ben Sass lost his way. I'm not sure if he was groomed by the Republican Party at the time. I'm not sure if these are even his own ideas. I invited him on this show because obviously if you're on the show, we try to have fair time for both sides. He didn't. He said he couldn't come on the show because of scheduling issues. I know there are a lot of criticisms about him in terms of the lack of town halls he's been doing. What do you think the motivation is on his part to not go out and message in Nebraska as much as even you are right now? These senators get to work 132 days out of the year. That gives them plenty of time to come back to the state that elected them to represent them and have a conversation with people. The number one complaint I hear from people, even Republicans that live in western Nebraska, is that we don't know who he is. He has the opportunity to make policy and pass policy decisions every day, and he's chosen not to. I'd, I'd say that a lot of people just genuinely accept that Nebraska, largely the Republican, has the advantage in general. And it, oftentimes there's a question that comes up of, does it matter that much who you're even running? I mean, does party alignment on its own just disqualify people? And this is something that's why I try to ask about political philosophy divorced from just party affiliation in the first place. But I mean, for someone like him in a place where it is a red state for the most part, is it something where regardless even of what people think about him just by being a Republican, does that put you at more of a disadvantage where you have to work harder? It's an ideology that has meaning. But we've had Democratic senators before, Bob Kerry. We've had Democratic governors before. So Ben Sass just took over office in 2014. Um, ben Nelson was a Democratic senator up until 2012, until little Debbie Fisher took over for him. So it's not like the state that can't vote blue or red, but we need to take the color away. And we have to understand, we're not, I'm not running to move things further left. And I'm not moving to move things for the right. I'm moving to move our state and our country forward. Now, I hear this all the time when I travel the state. My vote doesn't count. We live in a red state. And I simply answer, we do not live in a red state. We live in a state that doesn't vote. You just told me your vote doesn't count. Show up and vote. Now, I've crunched the numbers. In Nebraska, we have about 500,000 registered Republicans. And we have about 385,000 registered Democrats. That's your R's and your D's. We also have about 245,000 registered independents. And that can tip the scales either way. So we've got to persuade the people of this state to vote what's best for them. We've got to give them a platform and a plan that will work for everyone. And we have to sit down and we have to start listening to people as to what we can do to make their lives better. Some facts out of USA Today that just came out. We have reached 450 suicides between male farmers aged 40 to 50 years old in nine Midwestern states that have been affected by the bankruptcy and the trade deals going on with this current administration. And Ben Sass chooses to do nothing. As a sitting senator, he and the other 99 senators have the ability to take this power of negotiating trade deals away from the president and do it themselves. And they've chosen not to. The suicide rate is up 40% from where it was in 2016. And that was based on health care. Now we're entering into a phase where these farmers can't even make any money. Being from a farm community, I know the pride 
that my grandfather took in the land. I know how he got up every day, like we talked earlier, from sunset or sunrise to sunset and tilled that land. Uh, it was a love of the land. That's why they call it the heartland where we are in this part of the country. They tilled the soil. They fertilized the soil. They planted seeds in the soil. They weeded the soil. They hoped for rain and, and Mother Nature and the weather to cooperate. They dealt with the machinery that broke down. They dealt with the lack of help. All they did all summer long was for the love of what they did, hoping they could sell that crop come October and make a profit, pay back the loan, and have some money to live off of. I experienced it. I lived through it. And now what we're doing to the farming community in the state, this is horrific. One out of every $4 that comes into the state of Nebraska, that is 25% of our income in this state is from agriculture. And we've decimated it. Now you throw in Mother Nature and the floods. Now you throw in the, the suicides and the bankruptcies. And it, it spells total chaos for these poor people. Because party affiliation seems to have a lot to do with how people vote, almost more so than what a party says at a certain level, why is it that you think that Republicans still are seen as the farm-friendly party, uh, even with some of the statistics you've just said? I think a lot of the farming community has blinders on. I I don't understand why. A lot of misinformation, a lot of half-truths, a lot of just give us more time, we're actually working for you. I mean, the farm bill was created by Democrats. The farming subsidiary of healthcare was created by Democrats to help the farmers out when they had bad years. The farm crisis that occurred in the late 70s during the time a Democrat was in office, Jimmy Carter, and the first thing he did was a lot money to be paid to these farmers until the droughts dried up and, and went, or went away and, and the soil didn't dry up anymore. So I don't understand the affliction or the the admiration for the Republican Party that we're seeing right now. Uh, I don't understand it, but I'm working to diffuse it. We don't need more Democrats running for office. We need better Democrats running for office. And so many people don't understand the needs and the wants of Nebraskans. Uh, we're not the richest state in the union. In fact, we're very middle of the road, but we provide so much for the other 49 states, and that's where we need to have our power and our voice heard. Do you think that it would be helpful for the country to reduce not even just partisanship, but just the hold of two parties themselves in these cores where it's like, if I know what your party affiliation is, I'm going to make, I'm going to assume I know 90% of what you think about everything. Would it be helpful to move away from a two-party system? Yes, it would. I agree with you 100%. It's, it's no, it should no longer be if there's an R behind the name or a D behind the name or an I for an independent. That, I think, is archaic. I think that's gone the way of the dinosaur. We have got to start represent or voting for the people who will represent us the best and vote for the person that has your values in alignment with theirs and vote for the, for the person that you think is going to represent you the best. You know, there are 99 other senators in Washington, D.C. that I have to work with, that I have to negotiate with to make a, a policy happen or make a law pass. We can't forget that we've got to have someone in there that negotiates. It can't be my way or the highway anymore. Did you ever consider running as an independent? I have, but based on the history of independence, that was a no-brainer. Uh, I've considered running as a Republican. That mm-hmm. position is taken. So here I am as a Democrat running to represent the people of Nebraska and giving them the representation they deserve. They need to start demanding it. So, I mean, the main argument against running as an independent is just it's harder to get access to funds, right? Access to funds. And like we said earlier about the R and the D behind your name, I don't think people take an independent seriously. And so they shy away from them. That seems like a, a problem that would be worth trying to fix, but I can see how it's very difficult to know how to. Right. And if you look at, from the numbers I crunched earlier, we have about 225,000 registered independents in the state of Nebraska. They're going to decide the election. They are the voice of this state at this point as to how this election is going to go. And so you also have a lot of other people currently that you're competing with just for the Democratic side here. So, I mean, what, what are you doing that's different or what differentiates your campaign from theirs? There are seven people running for the United States Senate seat uh, for the primary to get to the general election. I've been in – I ran in 2018 um, against uh, Deb Fisher – did not make it through the primary, but I did not get into the race until three days before I could actually file because I didn't like the way the Democratic Party and their nominee was actually leading. There were four or five contestants or, or people in that race that were up for the – and 
we got into that race, and in 72 days, we took 20,000 votes out of 92,000 cast with six people in the race. So I know people were listening to me. I know I made a difference. Um, I spent that 72 days of my life traveling this entire state from Hastings to Grand Island to Scotts Bluff to Kearney, Lincoln, Lexington, Sioux City, um, Valentine, Douglas County, Sarpy County, Lancaster County down in Lincoln. And I listened to people. And a lot of the people couldn't believe that I had gotten into the race and I didn't stand a chance. Well, we came in second. So I know people are listening to me and I, people are getting the message. You know, my campaign is based on the phrase, enough. We've had enough. We're not doing this anymore. It's time we elect someone who's going to represent us and who's going to look out for us and who's going to be on the forefront for our needs and our stability, not theirs. We have a couple people in this race in 2020 that have run before. One was a former Republican. He has now switched to being a Democrat. One is our perennial candidate out of Fremont that runs for everything. We've got a few women that are, are I feel, are more activist than they are um, candidates, and we need the activist. But I feel out of all of them running that I am the best to represent the people, and I have the best chance to beat Ben Sass this fall. What lessons have you learned from your previous uh, attempts at running? Like we said earlier, to listen to people and and to make sure I listen to everything they're saying and to come up with a, uh answer or a solution that will affect not just them but the majority of people that run in this state. We're always going to have haters. We're always going to have people that disagree, especially on health care, on the social side of things, on immigration, on uh, climate change, on the gun gun lobby and the gun control issues that are going on right now, on women's rights and on abortion. We're always going to have people that disagree. But if you look at any of those numbers when you poll them in the state and as a nation, everything polls over 50%. 94% of people polled want some type of gun reform done, and they want it done now. 77% want immigration taken care of, and they want it taken care of now. Uh, 67% want some type of universal health care for all the people in this country now. 77% want women's uh, reproductive right decisions left alone. And so, I mean, another issue I saw on your site is you have a separate tab for climate change. Correct. Climate change does not seem to be that much of a priority on the right in general. Uh, you could go further than that, certainly, in terms of how it's actually been addressed, uh, whether it's the Paris Climate Agreement or anything else. What makes that something that's so important to you that it gets a separate tab, and what are your thoughts on it for Nebraska? The youth of America, that is the number one issue. It it was to the point where we had so many young people reaching out to us about climate change and global warming that we had to address it, and we had to do our own little tab on it. And we uh, recruited four young people from Creighton University that became our panel on climate change. And we address the the effects of global warming right now. We address the effect of recycling everything we can possibly recycle. We address the fact that uh, we need alternative energies right now, whether it be nuclear, whether it be geothermal, whether it be solar, wind. Coal is still viable in some parts of the world, but it is a dying industry. It is a filthy industry. It provides health issues for anyone who works in that industry that's not sitting behind a big board in a high-rise uh, so we have to look at all these other methods. And these kids have done wonders. And if you go to ChristopherSenate2020.com and you click on that uh, climate change, you'll see their stances and how they said. So that was a huge thing for us to address. And as we sit here right now, the Arctic ice caps are melting. Antarctica is recording 67 to 71 degree temperature days. Um, the ocean levels are rising. We're seeing massive 100-year floods coming every two years. We're seeing tidal waves associated with hurricanes and tsunamis. We don't see just a tornado come anymore. We see clusters of tornadoes come. I mean, we have the fires, you know, burning in Australia, burning in California. We have earthquakes that are massive as the, as the earth moans and groans with the temperature heating up. So we have scientists that tell us on a daily basis, this is real. But we have an administration that denies it. So, I mean, as far as some of the climate options that you would want to actually vote for uh, through the Senate, how, how do you feel about whether it's the Green New Deal or other proposed solutions and then how to actually enact them in a practical way? The Green New Deal is a very radical 
idea of how to to get climate under control done by 2030. But what we need to start uh, working on immediately is carbon that's being released into the atmosphere. And one of the ways we can combat that is we've got to stop the deforestation going on. Uh, Right now, there's a big thing going on in North Dakota and Texas, the fracking as we dig up the oil. That's drilling horizontally uh, instead of vertically. And when we do that, one of the offsets of that is natural gas being emitted into the atmosphere. Uh, and I always say, well, why don't we contain it? Why don't we – well, there's, it's not cost-effective to, to contain natural gas and put it in a tank and ship it because prices are so low, no one's making any money off it. So what do they do? They set it on fire. There are so many natural gas leaks coming out of the Earth's crust right now over North America that you can see them from space. And that's all carbon being pumped into our atmosphere. We have the Keystone XL pipeline right now that is a huge battle running this across Nebraska. Um, we should stop spending any more money and time and energy into fossil fuels, into new developments, and we should start spending our time and energy into wind power and into geothermal. You know, when you drill down 70 feet into the earth, you have a constant temperature of 67 degrees. That is fantastic for taking care of our heating and cooling needs. Wind energy. I just drove back from Duluth, Minnesota yesterday, and as we entered Iowa, you see these wind farms everywhere. And I keep thinking, I don't understand where this is an eyesore. I think this is a type of beautiful sculpture that is doing the earth justice and and helping out with our power needs. And, uh, you know, hydro power, which is the movement of water. We all have water coming into our homes. There should be a power propeller in each one of those four-inch pipes that generates electricity to help power home. Anytime a roof is replaced anymore with new shingles, they should be solar panel incorporated. I mean, you go down to Brazil, every tile roof down there has a a little uh, solar panel built into it that connects to the next shingle. And when the sun shines, it generates power. And, you know, Tesla's done a wonder down there with their their products, and we can do that here in the United States also. Because I bet you in 100 years, citizens are going to, if we have a planet, Citizens are going to look back and laugh that we didn't do this sooner. You know, Right now, my main concern with what's going on politically is I want a democracy to live in, and I also want a planet that I can live on. I think that's a good line for us to end on. Okay. So thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview. Thank you. And now we're going to hear from Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt, who wrote a very helpful primer on how mail-in voting works that was published in the Omaha World Herald. Here is Senator Hunt. Hey everybody, this is State Senator Megan Hunt from District 8, and I represent the neighborhoods of Dundee and Benson and the areas around Keystone and Memorial Park, and I wanted to tell you all a little bit about Vote by Mail in Nebraska. So across many platforms, from Facebook and Twitter to my email to conversations with my own family members, I've heard a lot of questions and confusion about voting by mail in Nebraska, so I wanted to offer some clarity to the thousands of Nebraskans who, like me, will be voting by mail for the first time in 2020, um, and I wanted to respond to some of the most common questions I receive. Okay, the first question, how do I vote by mail? The Secretary of State has sent vote by mail applications to every Nebraska voter, and that is really great news. If you want to vote by mail, you have to fill out the application and return it to your county election commission by fax, email, or regular mail by May 1st. You can also take a picture of your application or scan it and email it to your county election official. If you've misplaced your application or you didn't receive one, you can also access vote by mail applications online. Okay, the next question, what if I don't have a printer? If you can't find someone to help you print off the vote by mail application, call the election official in your county and they will send you an application in the mail. Another question I get is, isn't this a lot of stuff to be mailing out? What if I don't have stamps? So to be clear, these are the only two things that you need to send to your county election official. First of all is your application to vote by mail and second, your completed ballot. So that's just two things you have to mail in or send in. And note that both the application and the returned ballot require a stamp because postage in Nebraska is not included. However, there are ways to return both your application and your ballot without a stamp. For your application, you can take a picture or scan it and then email it to your county election official. And once you receive your ballot, you can drop your completed ballot in its envelope at a Dropbox location without a stamp. Every county has a ballot drop box, and they have at least one. Um, The Nebraska Association of County Officials 
and the Secretary of State has paid for every county to have a drop box. So you can drop your ballot there without a stamp. Also, this isn't something that the USPS or the Election Commission publicizes, but if you put a ballot in the mail without a stamp, they will return the ballot and they will get it to the Election Commission. So, you know, if that's something that you need to do, that's always an option. But the best thing to do is mail it in with a stamp. And if you don't have a stamp, just drop the completed ballot in its envelope at a drop box without a stamp. Next question, who is allowed to vote by mail? Easy. In Nebraska, any voter may request a vote by mail ballot, period. You don't have to give a reason. You don't have to write an explanation about why you need uh, to vote by mail. You can just request one and you will get a ballot. Next question, is vote by mail the same thing as early voting? Yes, vote by mail, vote at home, early voting, and absentee ballot all refer to the same thing in Nebraska. All right, the next question is, will I still be able to vote in person? Right now, the plan is to allow in-person voting in Nebraska, yes. The Secretary of State and his very experienced, very wonderful elections team have thought this through and they've put many precautions in place to protect poll workers and voters who do choose to vote in person. I have never voted by mail myself. Uh, in the past, I have always voted in person because I love getting the sticker, I love taking the ballot selfie, and I love the excitement of being at the polls on election day. But this year, I'm gonna be casting my vote from home. I requested a vote by mail ballot and I'm gonna be voting at home and I'll tell you why. Many of our loyal, hardworking poll workers in Nebraska are in those vulnerable populations. They're older, um, they have underlying health conditions and they are at critical risk for contracting the virus. So even if you're not symptomatic, you know that you could be carrying the virus and you could unknowingly spread it if you leave home to go to a polling place. So with the COVID-19 pandemic, the responsible thing for every Nebraskan to do is vote by mail from home. We're very fortunate to have the privilege to vote this way in Nebraska. Many states have barriers to voting by mail, and we've seen that play out in the national news, of course. And we also know that that drives down turnout. In Nebraska, we have to make sure that doesn't happen and that even in a public health emergency, everyone who is eligible to vote gets the chance to do so. Research shows that the best way to do that is to vote by mail. Next, I'm gonna tell you about a few important dates in Nebraska. On April 6th, that was the day that vote by mail ballots started being mailed out. May 1st is the deadline to request that a vote by mail ballot be sent to you. So if you're planning to vote from home and you haven't done it yet, make sure you get that request in by May 1st. And finally, the last important date is May 12th. That's election day. And you need to make sure that your ballot is received by your county election office by 8 p.m. Central Time, and 7 p.m. Mountain Time, because of course we've got our neighbors in Nebraska who are on Mountain Time. Uh, so keep those times in mind, keep those dates in mind, and get out there and vote by mail from home. This is State Senator Megan Hunt, and I hope you all vote by mail in 2020. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by the real Zebos. In the interest of full journalistic disclosure, I will admit that Chris Janicek gave me some cupcakes before our interview. I ate two of them, and one of my cats broke into the container and ate the others. Next week, we'll continue our congressional candidate series leading up to Nebraska's primary on May 12th with a conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Angie Phillips. I'm Tom Noblock. Thank you for listening.